On May 9th, in the rubble of a bombed-out continent, the seeds of today's European Union were planted by visionaries. They realized that creating a kind of United States of Europe was key to preventing yet another disastrous war. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. We're commemorating Europe Day today by learning about some of the major issues member states of the European Union are facing this year. Four tour guide friends from Europe are joining us for a special roundtable discussion about their countries and how Europeans are trying to form their own more perfect union through the EU. Something we should not forget is that one of the goals of the European Union is to guarantee peace and to provide stability. Americans are sometimes surprised at how well-informed Europeans are about our domestic issues. Our goal today is to raise our IQ when it comes to domestic challenges confronting the citizens of the European Union. We're checking in on the European Union in the hour ahead. Thanks for joining us. It's Travel with Rick Steves. In the span of one lifetime, Europe has gone from a continent that literally ripped itself apart in a horrific war to a unified free trade zone of about 500 million people, the European Union. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today I've assembled a panel of Europeans, and we're going to talk about the European Union. What is it like from their perspective? What does it matter to the tourist? I'm joined by Federico Garcia Barroso, representing Spain, Rolinka Blooming, representing the Netherlands, Stephen McPhillamy, coming from Ireland, and Etelka Parina Barretz from Hungary. Rolinka, Federico, Stephen, Etelka, thank you for being with us. Cheers, Rick. Thank you. Thank you for it. So we've got, we got Spain, we've got Hungary, we've got Ireland, and we've got the Netherlands. That's a pretty good representation. And please just jump right in on these thoughts. I, I want to know, first of all, from each of you, how has the European Union been good and how has it been bad for your country? Stephen McPhillamy from Ireland, what, what's the pros and the cons of the European Union from your point of view? Well, mostly pros. I would say we joined in 1973, Ireland did along with Britain and Denmark, and we really aren't any cons, to be honest, I mean, uh, that I can think of that spring to mind. But our pros are, we've gone from being an economic basket case to being like the golden child economically of the European Union, although that's starting to change a little bit now, but that was that's how it went. So we got a lot of money, so we were um, what were called net receivers, which means we got lots of cash. So there's a, a median level for economy, and anybody who joins who's below that median is a net receiver of the the pooled resources, and those who are richer than the average, they're net givers, is yeah, that right? Yeah, classed as net contributors. Net contributors. And, and we have this great concept in Europe uh, called the cohesion funds. So everyone has to come into cohesion with the Dutch and the Germans. Now, is that a French. good investment for the Germans and the French to give all this money to the Irish? Well, I can't see how an individual German living in Munich is going to benefit from it, apart from maybe a feel-good factor that he's helped the Irish become rich. Because what's in it for him or her? However, they're given to other people in Europe, and I don't know if they would really say it's really benefited them. It's definitely benefited us. And but isn't the, ra- isn't the rationale that a, a massive free trade zone of 500 million people is only as uh, strong as its weakest link, and it behooves everybody to identify the weak points and bring them up to speed? Yeah, I think that's definitely the, one of the that's founding the principles of it. But then with that comes lots of Euroscepticism too, like I mean, in the United Kingdom there. I'd say if you ask the average Englishman that he liked being part of the European Union, he'd want to get out of it pretty quick. Well, the Irish benefited more from this than oh, the English because yeah. the Irish were relatively poor. Yeah. Rolinka Blooming from the Netherlands, uh, how would the average Dutch person assess? The, of course, you've been in the European Union. You were one of the charter members as opposed to Ireland. Has it been generally good or, or full of problems? 
I think it has been generally good, but um, we're talking about a different scale here. In my country, the Netherlands, is one of the smallest countries in the European Union. So there was already an economical cooperation with Belgium and Luxembourg immediately after World War II. And then we were one of the founding countries for the European Union in 1957. You have to cooperate if you are a country with the size of the state of Maryland in America. So there's sort of a sense, if you're in the Netherlands, that if you're going to play ball in this rough-and-tumble global world, you better be a bigger economic union. Yes. Or you'll be lost. Mm -hmm. But I think something we should not forget is that uh, the European Union was founded in, in 1957, and one of the main goals was to prevent another war and to guarantee peace. And now it's 60 years later, and this is something we accomplished Without the European Union, you could say the continent would be due for another war. I mean, historically, every about 50 or 60 years, there's going to be some sort of a horrible war, France and Germany generally knocking each other senseless. And now I think the vision was, let's talk people into trading away a little sovereignty so we can have this union. We'll integrate our economies to the point where it's in nobody's interest to go to war within Europe. And is the general assessment in Europe that you can complain about little frustrations of the European Union, but we have realized this goal of growing beyond the possibility of a war. Is this true? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that's quite an accomplishment, really. Etelka from Hungary, how, how has the European Union benefited and hurt Hungary? Well, Hungary entered, joined the European Union in 2004 uh, with other 10 uh, Eastern European this countries. This was the big day in 2004 when almost yeah. all the Warsaw Pact nation joined the European Union and the geographic center of Europe shifted overnight from Belgium That's to about true. Hungary or the Czech Republic. Yeah. So you're no longer Eastern Europe. You're back into the fold, Central Europe now. That's right. Rolinka comes from a perspective where it's always been the EU. Rolinka's entire life, she's been in, in this sort of a union. You are newcomers. That's right. And we say that I am from Eastern Europe, but we always knew that this is Central Europe. And the biggest celebration among the joining countries was in Hungary in 2004. And we agree that entering the EU, is uh, it was the right step. Of course, we do not like the lot of, lot of regulations. But after four or five years joining the EU, Hungary thinks that, well, Hungary is the only country which benefited the least of the EU. But generally, if we look at Slovenia, for example, they adjusted the euro in 2007. They say that it's just the best idea. And what is really good about the EU, joining the EU, we are again a big family. We became the member of a big country. And uh, you know that, uh, for example, Hungary lost a lot of countries and a lot of people after the First World War. That's right. You were the Austro-Hungarian Empire, That's which was true. like a quarter of Europe was the Austro-Hungarian Empire. That's it. Suddenly, you start you're... and lose the war. The, the Habsburgs are gone. Yes, yeah, two-thirds of the uh, population uh, so you and have the territory. A, a difficult gone. couple of decades, and then suddenly you're part of the Soviet sphere. Yeah. And, and then 2004? Four, yes. Welcome again, to Europe. A reunion, we can say. And uh, one more thing which we really love, the borders opened. Yeah. And although uh, we could travel in the Eastern European countries, but the uh, restrictions at the borders were really, really sometimes uh, stupid. You not only the passports, but you had to open everything. They packed your bags and they forced you to stay at the border for hours. But now you can travel freely. Now you want to go from Budapest to Vienna? 
How complicated is that? Nothing. I just get into my car and I stop in Vienna. (laughs) And and during the communist times, before joining the EU, I took my students to England and we got on the bus and we had just one border crossing at the Hungarian-Austrian border. And from that time on, they didn't notice that we are in Belgium, we are in Netherlands, and the kids, hey, this is something. This is freedom. This is freedom. (laughs) It's very interesting for me right now to look at this panel and to see the delight and the smile on Atelka's face because she's the person who grew up without the ability to cross borders. Everybody else is going, well, yeah, you just cross a border. If you're Hungarian, it's not quite so easy. Now it's a new age. Federico from Mm -hmm. Spain, what's your take from a Spanish perspective on the pros and cons of the European Union? We are very, very happy. I feel what I felt when I was in, in Spain in the 80s and Spain and Portugal were joining the European Union. That was a big boom, you know, for us. Uh, our economy has increased. Spain obviously has some disadvantages now. It's slightly uh, more expensive than it was before. But uh, all the things that I can think about now are absolutely positive for my country. Now, all of you are um, cosmopolitan travelers, your tour guides, you know, you you embrace the world. There must be elements in your countries that don't like the European Union, who are threatened by it or afraid of it or tired of the Germans determining the interest rates or or whatever. Take the uh, devil's advocate position here in each of your countries. What would be the primary complaint about the European Union from somebody who was not a Europhile uh, Rolinka in the Netherlands. I, I think I have a better example if I'm thinking of France. So, okay, so let me think be, of France. And uh, we should mention the, that Rolinka, yeah. in good European style, fell in love with a Frenchman, and now this Dutch girl lives in the south of France. So, <laughs> And this is not unusual these days as, as Europe mixes it up. Okay. If I think of France and this big issue about the Polish workers, I mean, borders are open. So it, it, it means if a country enters the European Union, there's free movement for people, there's free transportation for goods. So uh, people from... Hungary or wherever, uh, can decide uh, to find a job and look for a better future in one of the other countries. And I remember very well when the police had the chance to come over to France that they started working in construction and that the French were really upset and said that the Polish plumbers were taking their jobs away. So the, the people from Poland would work harder for less money. At least that was the the root of the problem, and it threatened the people in construction in France to the point where they did not like the immigrant laborers from Poland. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And this is the famous Polish plumber. This is the famous pl- Polish <laughs> plumber story. <laughs> yes. So we have our Joe the plumber. Uh, <laughs> Stephen, tell us so the Americans can understand this whole Polish plumber phenomenon in, in Europe. Well, in Ireland, too, we have hundreds of thousands of Polish plumbers and every other sort of. So there's three million Poles, and apparently they're like hungry. They'll they'll come over and work. I mean, and they love the work. They love (laughs) the work. So I mean, if you're a sort of a lazy, uh, spoiled uh, Irish worker, and all of a sudden you're competing with somebody who will work cheap and hard and good and good. Well, I wouldn't even say cheap. You know, we like I run youth hostels in Ireland, and we have a lot of Polish workers and plumbers and everything else. And we don't pay them any less than we'd pay the Irish. We just can't get the Irish to do the jobs. We put the advertisements in the paper and they just don't come to do it. They don't want the work. Exactly. The Polish want it. We don't pay the Polish any less. That's highly oh, illegal. Well, in that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, so there's, they're just willing to really roll up their sleeves and work oh, yeah, hard. get on with it, yeah. At first, there was a, a difficulty. A lot of Germans were employing Eastern Europeans with the unification of Germany mm-hmm. just because they thought it was a, a thoughtful thing to do. And these people came in from the East and they had no work ethic. And there was a big headache. And they would send them back. They'd, they'd stay long enough to buy a used car and they'd go back home. Uh, but now, apparently, the Eastern Europeans, they come and they, they get the job done. Etelka, hmm. uh, if, if you were in Hungary and you were angry with the European Union, what would you be angry about? 
What I didn't like, but I understand about the EU decision. For example, we are a country which is famous for the wine. Yeah. And some farmers are supported to cut out the wineries. The others are supported just to grow. And not only with the wine, but with other kind of products. It's difficult to understand mm. that there should be a regulation. There are agricultural issues that threatened people who had a smaller uh, economic environment that's to do right, their work. That's right. Federico from Spain, what would the anti-European person complain about from a Spanish point of view? Well, basically, well, it's just all about a matter of money. You know, the cost of living is a little bit more expensive. Yeah. The other things are absolutely positive, and I totally agree with this, Stephen. There is a big hypocrisy, you know, in a small part of the Spanish society, and those people that see problems where there are no problems, and, and people that say, hey, those foreigners are entering here to get our jobs, but no one would do any of those jobs, you know, which is yeah. absolutely a so reality. That's the new reality. You need yeah. to work and work hard, and things are going to be more expensive. I don't understand this, but all over Europe, people complain mm -hmm. about the high cost of living because of the euro. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the European Union with Federico from Spain, Itelka from Hungary, Stephen from Ireland, and Rolinka from the Netherlands and also from France. We'll also hear your questions and comments for our European Roundtable at 877-333-7425. And by email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. To educate us about some of the issues facing residents of the European Union this year, we're having a Travel with Rick Steves panel discussion with four guides from different parts of the EU. Itelka Barretz joins us from Hungary, Federico Barroso is from Spain, Stephen McPhillamy, who lives in Ulster, is representing perspectives of both the Republic of Ireland and the United Kingdom, and Rolinka Blooming was raised in the Netherlands, but like a true multicultural European, she's recently moved to France. 877-333-RICK. That's our phone number. Radio at ricksteves.com is the email address for your questions and comments. Well, we've established the fact that Europe has created a vast free trade zone of about 500 million people with an economy about the same as the United States, $13 trillion. 
and uh, Europe has all of a sudden got a big, cumbersome bureaucracy, and there's lots of insults about the European Union where everything is regulated right down to the uh, required curve of a banana. But bottom line, Europe has grown beyond really the possibility of having a giant war again. Uh, historically, France and Germany have always been at each other. Now those economies are so interwoven that really, by all assessments, a major war in Europe is, is really unthinkable. But Rick, on that point, you see, yeah. we're at the stage now where we're no longer just a big happy family now. We now are a European super state and we're on the verge of getting our own army and a lot of the, like, you've got 27 member countries who have historical enemies. And if one of those enemies decides to attack one of the European Union members, then the rest of us may be obliged to help. Let's say the Turks decide to have a go at the Greeks. Let's say the Russians decide to go at the Finnish like they did 50 years ago. Then, you know, in Ireland, this is the big issue for us at the minute. One of the big issues for us mm. is military neutrality. We're a neutral country. It's our constitution states we must remain militarily neutral. And we're not allowed to take part in any wars unless they're sanctioned by the United Nations. So for us, it's a big issue. I know lots of young Irishmen in, in our army, which is very small, but I don't think they'd want to go off and help the Finnish if the Russians so, attack So them. suddenly with the European Union, Greece's enemy becomes Ireland's enemy and Finland's threat becomes Portugal's threat. Yeah, or Ireland's threat. Anyone's threat becomes yeah. a threat for all of us because we are a union. We're not just this nice group of... So happy this is, Europeans this is the next are, challenge, we are, isn't we are it? now a, a state. We have our own flag. We have our own anthem. We're about to have our own president. We have our own parliament. I mean, so we have our own currency now as well. So the next step now is our own army, and that's a scary one. And you're for speaking us. when you say our own. You're speaking as a European European army. Yeah. Now all of you are countrymen here. This is interesting to me. I mean, you could be from County Cork. You could be Irish, or you could be European. You could be Castilian. Mm-hmm. You could be Spanish, or you could be European. Mm-hmm. Is it too simplistic to say the young generation is, is more European now than it has been in the past? Do you feel like Europeans? I think we do, yeah. I do, absolutely. Uh, we are all in the same legal frame, and we still have to talk a lot about the European constitution, you know, which is a, a yeah. never-ending story, and it takes time. It takes time to unify so many, so many ideas yeah. in these 27 countries. Because here in the United States, we have to put up with Californians and Texans and people from New York and... And, and those Minnesotans, you know, and uh, the Washingtonians. So, I mean, it's not as distinct as you, but you get along with people who have different cultures. Exactly. And I, the challenge, as you're saying, is you're not all as warlike and you don't come with the same baggage historically as the others. And you've got to decide, are you going to be in this together or not? Do some people have the option to opt out of some of these agreements? Well, that's the whole debate at the moment. Exactly. Uh, are we a union or not? We're going to be a full union are we going to be like an a la carte union where you pick the bits that you want? Because uh, certain Scandinavian countries are very a la carte about it, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Denmark and Sweden haven't taken on the euro. You look at the map and you see uh, Sweden's part of the EU, but it's not part of the eurozone. Denmark is part of the EU, but mm-hmm. it doesn't have the, the euro, right? Mm-hmm. Great so, Britain? No, not yet. Great Britain. Britain. Great Britain, Sweden, and Denmark. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. All right. And, and Switzerland's right there in the middle. <laughs> Staying in its own. <laughs> What's with that? Are they part of the European Union? No, and I, no. Don't, I don't think they'd probably want to become they part of the European <laughs> Union. No, they call themselves a neutral, and we call them a sneaky. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> the sneaky no. neutral. Right. We'll, have to get, we'll have to get a Swiss person here to, to give their side of the story. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we're getting a look at the European Union with friends from the Netherlands, from Ireland, from Hungary, and from Spain. Okay, now, the European Union to me is uh, 
coming out of Brussels, it has a passion for the ethnic diversity in Europe. It seems like it has a passion to fund small languages and small undertakings that will not recognize political borders, but recognize ethnic borders. Thoughts on that? Yes, I think it's one of the priorities nowadays, you know. So Catalan, you know, for instance, in mm-hmm. your country, they, they say, don't call me a, a region. That's mm-hmm. what Franco called us. We are a nation without are, a state. We are a nation without a state. There are several nations in Spain without a state. We have to say also that that's a minority of local inhabitants in these uh, regions in Spain. They are nationalistic and they consider themselves a nation without a state. And actually, they just want to talk directly to Brussels, you know. Are they better off, these little nations without states, with the European Union compared to before? I think they see themselves that way. Like, you have the Scottish nationalists, Mm -hmm. uh, who are the biggest political party in Scotland now, and their motto is an independent Scotland, breaking away from the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm but part of the European Union. And that's kind of ironic because they're part of this union, which is the United Kingdom. They want to break away from it and they're going to join a bigger one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but London would not be as threatened now as a generation ago by this because London can read the writing on the wall and power will emanate from Brussels rather than London in the future. Is that correct? Well, I don't think London would like to see it that way. I think the British are frightened and um, reluctant more maybe of that. I don't think they want to hand over their power to the Germans or the French. Or the Italians. The Brits don't. No, no, absolutely not. No, but they're more inclined to let Scotland have a little more leash, a little more freedom now than in the past. Yeah, and that's what Tony Blair gave them their own parliament. They got their parliament. But the Scots nationals do see themselves stronger as part of a European context. So when you're understanding what's going on in the European Union as a tourist, there actually is a way you can learn about this. Yes, you could visit the buildings of the European Parliament or Strasbourg, Strasbourg in France, or Brussels, of course, uh, in Belgium. It's open for visitors. They do guided tours. And it's actually very interesting to see how these meetings go because uh, all of the participating countries, they send ministers into the European Parliament. It is according to population. So the largest population is Germany. They've got most ministers in the European Parliament. The small countries just sent a couple of uh, ministers And then the interesting thing, if you are a minister in the European Parliament, you're supposed to think as a European, so you don't sit, the Germans don't sit together, the Italians don't sit together, you sit according to political party. Mm -hmm. What I think is the, the funniest thing that is happening at the moment with the 27 countries, that everybody has the right to speak their own language. There's more than 1,000 people at the moment in the Parliament in the field of translation and interpretation which I think is kind of bothering us because that is a lot of money, tax money that this goes is, to Brussels. This is bothering you. It's, it seems inefficient. It seems overly politically correct to let 25 languages have equal presence. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. with the salary they, they've got, you would think, well, let's let's just talk one language or what, maybe... What language would that be? Well, let's, let, why not English? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Do you think most people are cool enough just to say, okay, English it'll be? Except maybe the French and the Germans, they would probably debate that. Yeah, but even if if you would translate it in a couple of languages, okay, then there is this discussion, which languages... Etelka from Hungary, would that be okay with you to to not speak Hungarian in a a political way in Brussels? Well, I myself, I wouldn't mind because I speak uh, several languages. Of course, we are proud of having all the languages, but I... I agree with the Rolinka. She is definitely right. I've been to the information point there at the European Union headquarters. It's a wonderful welcoming center for visitors and Europeans alike, citizens and tourists. And you see everything is in 20, whatever the number of languages is. Yeah. The only good thing about it is when somebody makes a joke, 
the joke needs to be translated, and the laughs come in waves. Oh, that's great. I'd love to see that. <laughs> Does the humor translate from one language to the other? Well, yes, seems. <laughs> An interesting issue for me is the whole money thing. Now, where does the money come from to run the European Union? It's not direct taxation, right? No, every country contributes, and then it's divided up. Based on population or economy or what? Oh, well, based on a variety of factors, also based on your ability to pay. A lot of countries so probably net, don't pay. So that. it would be contradictory for a net receiver to be paying a tax then. Well, they, they're, they're actually the, the paying poor nothing. Countries, the, poor, they're, the poor countries they're, are paying nothing and getting money. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so it's just this whole net receiver, net contributor thing yeah. that funds the European Union, which bolsters the poorer countries. I was just in Greece. There's an incredible new bridge over the Gulf of Corinth paid for by European Union money. Yeah. Probably by us. Probably by you. <laughs> I know. The Irish force. I mean, no, you don't pay Well, we do not. No, we do not. That's no, not true. come on. Like, cynics, cynics would say, oh, the poor countries shouldn't be taking all this money, but we took it for 30 years, and now we're giving it back. Exactly. Yeah. So, well, there's a lot of wisdom. That's the whole notion of the Marshall Plan, when the United States helped to rebuild Europe after World War II. We wanted strong trading partners. Why would Germany give Greece money for a bridge so they can ship their <laughs> goods down to the Peloponnesian Peninsula and sell them? That's, that's my take on that. Is there, just but while we're talking about taxation, do people pay their taxes happily in Europe or do they have to be chased down by your tax collection agencies? <laughs> of course. We do You're not. safe. You can talk here. Tell me the frank story. <laughs> we do not pay happily the taxes. Some of the European, Eastern European countries are highly taxed. And one of those is uh, Hungary, for example. And of course, it's, it's never good to pay a high taxes. And we know that, well, it's not about taxes, but uh, in the European Union, a lot of money goes for the bureaucracy. And yeah. we do not agree with it. But on the other side, we are really happy that the EU funds goes to really great things like a bridge was built, or for example, in the education system, special programs are supported. Or for example, uh, the teaching programs, the uh, Erasmus uh, programs. So the Erasmus program, which is a well-funded a program that sends tens of thousands of students and professors That's to right. study and, and teach in other countries. In other countries. Mm -hmm. And it's a great idea. So as a taxpayer, do you agree that's a good expenditure of money? I think it's a brilliant idea. Yeah. What's the practical reason to pay for a professor to leave Germany and teach in Portugal? Well, it's more aimed at the students. I mean, every university in Europe is twinned, if you like, with two or three others. Mm -hmm. And the students then from that university go off and go to that culture. And if it's not a really desirable location, like Holland or somewhere, <laughs> I'm only joking. Oh, well, that's not, I'm only saying that because <laughs> I, I, had the ch I had the chance to go to a university in Holland and because it wasn't seen as attractive as a university in the south of France, they offered to pay for my language lessons if I went. Oh, right. So they bribed you to go to a Dutch university. I didn't take the bribe. I never do that. <laughs> but it was there. I mean, that was nice. Okay. Now, I am just curious. This is not an EU thing. This is just a national taxation thing. You're all much more taxed than I think I am as an American. How does your government encourage people to pay their taxes honestly? Federico? It's difficult to answer because we are whiners. We are constantly complaining and we, we really have the feeling that we pay too much. It's, uh, it's, um, no, but I mean, what if you don't? What, what's the consequences? Do they throw you in jail? Do they fine you? Do they come and they audit you? They fine you. They really fine you. Just fine you? They really, really fine you. Are there people you. in jail in Spain for tax evasion? Of course. Of yeah, course, okay. yeah. Italka? Uh, in, in, mm. in, Just the same situation. Yeah. And this is uh, the next uh, topic in Hungary, to reduce the taxes. To reduce the taxes? That's right, in the mm. near future. Do people pay their taxes uh, honestly in Ireland? Uh, no. Uh, well, some do, uh, mostly reluctantly. And our politicians don't jail anyone in Ireland because most of our major tax evaders have been politicians, which is a fact. And, and <laughs> no one can sue me for saying that. In Ireland, we're a low-paying, like, 
tax culture we're more like the American style and that's one of the reasons we're rebelling against the European Union ah, at the moment that's right yeah like for example you know Microsoft are in Ireland and they pay somewhere around 13% if Microsoft wanted to go to Germany and set up a factory they'd be paying around 30% so why would they go to Germany? So then now that the other European countries are saying to us, if you want to be in Europe, you've got to charge the same taxes and make a level playing level field. Level playing field. Because you're a corporation, put your plant in Ireland, you get less taxation. Yeah, so we're saying no. All right. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking European Union issues with Rolinka from the Netherlands, Stephen from Ireland, Atelka from Hungary, and Federico from Spain, España. And Jim's on the phone in Denver. Hi, Jim. Thanks for your call to talk to you, Rick, and what a wonderful panel you have today. Thank you. My question uh, kind of stems out of that discussion of war and conflict. What are your observations and the panel's observations about the new xenophobia and racism that we've seen on the rise in Europe? And is there still that sense of optimism that there is a chance for this type of uh, unity and success in the European Union and ultimately in the notion of a global village? Or are people now considering more carefully the notion of an ultimate clash of civilizations, as described by Samuel Huntington? Is it true that there is a rising element of fear of immigrants and the racism that comes with that? Is that an issue in the European Union today, as you have a, a more and more problematic immigrant guest arbiter, you know, immigrant labor segment of your population? Yeah, but I think the vast majority of European citizens, there's 490 million of us, I'm sure probably 98% of us don't feel any xenophobic feelings or racist feelings. I, I, I don't see it any, anywhere in Ireland that much. I, mean, I don't see it at all, to be honest. And I'm just saying that much because it may be there. But I don't see it there. I don't see it in Britain that much. Uh, Racism talk in I, Hungary? I don't see any uh, fear. Of course, people were afraid when the borders opened that, oh, uh, people come and work and so on. But no fear. Federico, you have a lot of uh, North Africans in Spain working. I, I, I noticed uh, my friend in Spain was joking, uh, you don't have signs in Arabic pointing north, but you've got all sorts of signs on the freeways in Arabic pointing how to get back to Morocco. Yes, exactly. And of course, it all depends on the place where you are located in Europe. In Southern Europe, we we are witness of a slight sign of, of xenophobia, you know. I would say some people that belong to the Conservative Party, they don't like the fact that we have three immigration sources, one of them coming from Northern Africa because of geography, of course, they're next to us, another one from Eastern Europe. And then, I mean, those countries that some of them are not in the European Union, not yet. And also, in our specific case, many people from Latin America. Hmm. Anyway, I have to say that the majority, the majority of people in my country, we are not xenophobic and we have no problems with all these people. So as the economy gets worse with this financial crisis that's hitting Europe, just like the United States, you're going to find more working class people threatened by immigrant laborers like this Polish plumber. Well, you know, I'm thinking back to the unrest uh, outside of Paris and kind of this faux sense of community whereas many of the immigrants and immigrant labor, especially coming from North Africa and maybe a little bit deeper into religious and social issues, um, are we truly doing our best to make everybody feel inclusive? Is this new great experiment off on the best foot, or what kinks do we need to work out, and maybe where are the weak and strong points as we know it in the Union? Because if I had a North African French person here, an Algerian French person at this panel, they might not think it was so fair for them. I mean, there's a huge community of 
of poor, uneducated, angry young people with, with no hope for a good job or education surrounding Paris, and that's why you see them going on the rampage and burning cars every once in a while. Uh, do you Europeans see this as uh, just growing pains and something that Europe can handle no problem, or, or what do you see as the future of this problem? I think an angry young French Arab would feel that he'd be treated better by the European Union Parliament than maybe the French Parliament. He'd probably get a more sympathetic That's a good point. treatment from the wider European community. I was talking with an Algerian in Paris, and he was telling me that the British, because of their notion of the Commonwealth, treated their former colonies after their colonial age more compassionately and fairly economically than the French, who, by his assessment, colonized only to take advantage of people economically. Right. Whereas England yeah. had this notion, this high ideal of creating a commonwealth. And today, France is paying the price for that because France has angry immigrants more so than Britain, according to this guy. And I think the Turks have done remarkably well in Germany. Yeah, quite well. Yeah, quite well. Britain would have the same problems too. I mean, British citizens are detonating themselves in the tubes now and in buses. So they've got a serious issue. Well, they have a serious issue with their angry immigrants as well. I think, Jim, the reality is uh, Europe is an aging continent. Europe is accustomed to lots of affluence, and Europe doesn't want to do the hard jobs if it can hire people who are more desperate. And you're going to have immigrant laborers coming in just to rejuvenate Europe. That's the whole notion of talking with 70 million Turks to let them into the European Union. I don't think the average European wants to see Turkey as part of this family, but there's a reality we are a geriatric continent, and somebody's got to come in here and, and give it some new life. Uh, we'll talk more about that in a minute. Jim, thanks for your call. Thank you. We live in interesting times. We sure do. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today I'm joined by Federico from Spain, Atelka from Hungary, Stephen from Ireland, and Rolinka from the Netherlands. And we're talking about the European Union. Of course, the European Union is a vast free trade zone that has been created over the last generation in fits and starts. And a union is nothing without talking sovereign nations into trading away sovereignty for some meaningful union. And this has been an evolution now for 60-some years. When you read the newspaper headlines, it seems like Europe is uh, just a series of fiascos, but that's what makes the headlines. I think the sense I get from this panel is Europe is here to stay. It's uh, all in all a positive thing. The, the big accomplishment is the economy is interwoven now, so you do have this free trade zone to compete with emerging economic superpowers, India, China, and, of course, the United States. And you have a continent that is interwoven, so you won't have France and Germany and their allies going at each other again. Where does this ideal of Europe go from here? And it's been very interesting for me to study the European Constitution, which has never really passed. Is that right? It's, it looks like, who let out the hippies here? I mean, animals have civil liberties. Fathers get a month off for paid paternal leave. You've got all sorts of rights. You've got more civil rights built into that thing, more environmental safeguards. It's a beautiful constitution, but in practice, it might be a little bit too idealistic. What's your assessment of the European constitution at this point? Well, honestly, I, I don't think there is a constitution right at this moment. No, there's it's one in the works. Treaties. Yeah. Yes, yeah. It's just all these treaties. And I do agree that we need a constitution with 500 million people. Of course, you need a constitution, but in a way, we don't seem to, to manage. The constitution that they came up with was re rejected by the Dutch in a, and the French. Mm -hmm. So it was a dead duck then. So it was overreaching. It was too idealistic, I, mm -hmm. I think. Federico, what's your take not on the to, attempt not, to get a constitution? Not too practical. That's true. That's true. We voted. We said yes in Spain, but still there was a part of the society of Spain that was not really uh, agreeing you know, with this constitution, and they were actually supporting the policies of France and the Netherlands. It is an interesting issue because all the nations have to ratify these things, and in so many cases the vote is like 49 to 51. It's just very nip and tuck how Europe will proceed with this. 
like at university, you know, I studied American politics, and I thought your electoral college and your system was pretty complex. I mean, it's nothing compared to this system. Is this is right? complex beyond your wildest nightmares. The European uh, system of yeah. representative democracy. Like we, we voted against the Lisbon Treaty in Ireland, and we voted uh, 53% against it. A lot of us probably didn't really know what we were voting against. What was the essence of the Lisbon Treaty? Uh, the Lisbon Treaty was just to give the European government more central power. For the army? Uh, well, the army would have been one... Banking control? Financial control, uh, social policy, economic policy, everything. But it was also to simplify Europe. The European Union realises it's far too complex. Mm-hmm. It wants to make itself more simple. But you've got so many different nations. You mentioned there like California, Minnesota, whatever. At the end of the day, you're all still Americans. Do you know? We're, we're coming from very different backgrounds here. And to get all these 27 different races and nationalities and cultures to sit down and agree on a document... I don't know if it's ever going to work, but we rejected it. I think it's just very complex and it needs to be explained better. You know, I was talking to a man who represents your neck of the woods, Ulster, at the House of Lords, Lord John Alderdice. Oh, yeah. You know him? Yeah. He sat right here and he's a fascinating man. He's uh, much decorated for his psychoanalyzing of the Irish problem and then terrorism in Europe and the United States and its terrorism concerns and so on. And he made a good example. He told me, you're never going to get, for instance, France and Germany to defeat one or the other and have it their way. France will never be Germany. Germany will never be France. But they can agree to perpetual negotiation. And maybe that's the key here. Uh, You know, they're still happily French. They're still happily German. They're happily united economically. But a Frenchman's never going to be a German. And to try to make that happen is probably really uh, futile. Yes, we are all different, but we are all in the same boat. Now, when you think about all being in the same boat, I've been thinking about the fundamental difference between representative democracy in the United States and in Europe. And I find in the United States, we're so enamored by the corporations that we own that we have a government that is government by, for, and of the people via the corporations we own. In other words, to create a good business environment here in our country. In Europe, it seems to me more that European government is government by, for, and of the people in spite of the corporations that they own. In other words, Europe will do something not good for the general business environment if it's better for people or children or the future or the environment. Am I on to anything there, or what's your take on that? I think that's the case. I mean, we have got a very strong sense of not letting corporations monopolize everything. In Ireland, for example, right now, we have a national airline called Aer Lingus, and we have this real uh, cheap but sort of fruity kind of uh, no-frills airline called Ryanair. They want to buy the ailing national airline, or I don't know if it's ailing, but they want to buy it anyway. But the European Union has stopped them. Now, our government would probably love to let our Aer Lingus be sold, but the European Union has said no. Why? So, simply because they don't think it's good for one company to start buying up all the other airlines. So not necessarily unbridled free enterprise here, but protecting something that might be good for the uh, the notion of Ireland or something like this. For instance, if you're selling a car a consumer would have to pay for the disposal of the car when they buy it, or carbon to make the car carbon neutral or or something like this. You've got requirements in Europe that are not good for the economy that people embrace knowingly. Yeah, yeah. As Europe tries to be green and sustainable. Yeah, and the Green Party are to the fore in the European Parliament. I I don't think that's the same in your houses. So you've got a powerful Green Party in Europe that's not just a bunch of uh, fringe guys. Oh, yeah. In Germany, they're fairly mainstream, I'm sure, in Holland, too. In Ireland, they're in government at the moment. So, so the, the Green Party is considered mainstream in Spain? Everything is actually improving and, and getting better, much more, yeah. And another thing about the difference between the United States and Europe is we have this notion of charity, 
where we go to an, an auction and we support the local ballet or the children's uh, sports team or whatever. Do you have charity in Europe, or do you just expect the government to pay for the art or the sports team? Oh, no, we have lots of charities, too. So you have charities. Yeah. In Britain's really big into charities, and uh, Ireland. Oh, yeah. The Netherlands? I don't think so. But we pay so much taxes that... So you do I your charity through your taxes. Society-wide, the government would pay for what maybe in Ireland they would pay with a charity. I think so. Yes, we have charities as well, but it's not as common as in the Western European countries. As I mentioned to you, the taxation is so high, overtaxed, that people, even if they want, they cannot uh, always afford. So if the opera knocks on your door and say, we need money to, to pay for the singers, you'll say, well, that's what the government is supposed to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, thought, yeah I, wouldn't, I wouldn't give the opera any money. <laughs> I mean, I, I, like I, thought a you, true Irish I thought you meant the children in Africa. <laughs> the children in Africa. Oh, no, no. I'm sure, talking about the, uh, the, the cultural oh, no, fabric no, of no. your society. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring the differences between the United States and the European Union. We have uh, Italka from Hungary, Federico from Spain, Stephen from Ireland, and Rolinka from the Netherlands. And on the phone, we have Steve in San Luis Obispo, California. How are you doing? Good. Um, well, one thing that's becoming similar in, on both sides of the pond here is our aversion to smoking, and um, we're up to 71% of the population in America covered with good uh, smoking bans in public places, and I guess about nine of the European Union countries have those bans, and another five have partial restrictions. And boy, it's really been a breath of fresh air to, to travel there under these uh, new things. I worked with Tom Began from from Ireland, who was the Director General of the Irish Health and Th Safety Authority when they were putting their ban in, and was lucky enough to go over a year after and personally inspected all the pubs I could for about 16 days and found no smoking. And, you know, there it was a, uh, a health issue, as it should be. It was a, a vowed cancer causer, and that means you don't make your people work in smoky places. And Let's get our take from our panelists on the smoking. It seems to me Europe is rapidly becoming smoke-free. Federico, in Spain, what's the story? Well, in Spain, as, believe it or not, uh, we are not smoking so much as we used to before. There are many, many restaurants and many public places where nowadays it is uh, forbidden to smoke or there are some restrictions. That's true. It's all a matter of legislation about the size of the restaurant, for example. If the restaurant is big enough, there is just a small area for smokers, and if the restaurant is too small, it's absolutely forbidden to smoke. We are working on that. Yeah. Now, is that a European-wide regulation, or is, is this an example of how Europe is confused and every country still has its own policy? Relinka? It's still a national decision, but I, I see it goes so fast now that countries decide to be non-smoking completely. So I think we just need a couple of years more, and then all the European countries will be non-smoking. But this is an interesting sort of dynamic. It wouldn't come as a dictate from Brussels. Yeah. They would try it in Ireland, they'd try it in, in Italy, and then all of a sudden everybody would feel it's, okay, this fits, and then one after another they will go that way. Is Europe going to the direction where it will be making laws like this from Brussels for everybody at the same time? I hope so. Natalka? Yeah. yeah. And Stephen, smoking in Ireland, where is that now? Uh, it's working brilliantly. You can't uh, smoke in a pub? <clears throat> no, you can't smoke in anywhere where a citizen is working. Uh, that was just a government. We were the first country to do it. But and it, it was wasn't quite strictly thing. enforced, wasn't it? I mean, a lot of pub publicans oh, wanted yeah. to say, ah, oh, heck with that, we're going to have uh, uh, smoking in our pub, and uh, they'd lose their license. I think if the European Parliament or the European government had said to us, you've got to stop smoking throughout the Union, I don't think it would have worked as well. So some that's, things are better grassroots, country by country. Yeah, and that's, the, that's maybe one of the problems of the European Union. We don't know 
you know, what part, the death sentence has been scrapped all throughout the European Union. So they're allowed to tell us we can't have a death sentence, but yet they won't go and say, well, you shouldn't be smoking in the pubs, you know. So, I mean, we either have the European Union telling us to do everything or nothing or just little bits and pieces. There are some timelines that the EU recommended, at least. Recommending that all countries implement the smoke ban by a certain time? or Yes, I think or, so. At any rate, one of the geniuses of the Irish law was that uh, on every pub they had posted the name of a local person. And they said, if somebody's disobeying the law in here, call Mary Murray, and they put her phone number right there. And yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> all politics that's, is local. Yeah, it works yeah. great. That sounds pretty Irish to me. I love that. That's very intimate. Steve, thanks for the uh, reminder that we should get up to date on smoking with the European Union. Well, I think it's good for travel. It sure is. I'll tell you, the, the pubs are a lot more enjoyable now if you uh, don't want to come home smelling like a cigarette. Yeah, bye bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking the European Union today. Our phone number is 877 Rick. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. The big news for me is as Europe moves eastward, how is the east being assimilated into the west? And we've talked about net givers and net contributors. I suppose at Telco when 10 nations joined the European Union in, what, 2004, most of them from the former Warsaw Pact, all of them were net receivers. Have they been happy in the last five years with the economic development they've enjoyed because of their membership in the EU? Mostly they've been uh, happy. Of course, the last few months is exception because the financial crisis has the effect. But uh, people were skeptical about, for example, the euro, the new money, because uh, 10 countries adopted in 2001. Then the first country from the Eastern Europeans was Slovenia in 2007. And we are all looking forward to have the new currency. You know, Slovakia was the next. And by 2006, they had done what uh, all the other countries have talked about, for example, cut the government spending, reduce the taxes. Of course, the Slovak government offered targeted support to individual branches of industry, and it meant that less money flowed into the budget, but more money remained in the people's uh, pocket. Now, when a nation like Hungary mm-hmm. joins the EU, uh, you've had the encouragement, the subsidies coming from Brussels now, yeah. money from the wealthier countries, bringing uh, Hungary and Poland and uh, Slovakia, Czech Republic, up to speed. Now that you are essentially, you're up to speed with Europe, you could say, or at least close, and you look at countries further east, poor countries uh, like the Ukraine, wanting to join, psychologically, do you say, no, we're here now and that's enough, that's big enough, or do you like the idea of continuing to push east? I think we we like the idea. Just uh, 2007, Bulgaria, Romania... Uh, Mm -hmm. And, of course, there was a little worry that the people will come and take away the workplaces, but it didn't happen. This is the whole reality of a globalized society and free trade and so on. And I think Hungary, Romania, most people agree that these are European countries. There is this specter of Turkey. Very quickly, uh, there's pros and cons for Turkey. Uh, If I can just go around, uh, we got 70 million Turks. Uh, Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily want to join the EU, but their government, I think, does. It's probably good for business. I don't know. What's the general European take on Turkey, Uh, Relinka? I don't know. I don't think it's just Turkey. It's also Bulgaria and Romania. So the last two, the newest members, I think... Big enough? Europe is big enough? No. I think if we're not able to get a constitution, there's there's so many things we're not able to realize with 27 countries. Where do we go to? Where does it end? If you get too big, you become nothing at all, maybe. I think there's a fear of that, definitely. But I think it would be hypocritical to say to the Turks, well, no, you can't join, but... uh, the Estonians can, or, you know, if mm-hmm. the Estonians are part of Europe, well, geographically, Turkey's probably as close 
to the center of Europe that, that they I, I don't know, but it's... Is there a fundamental uh, difference that Europe is a Christian sort of culture, whereas uh, Turkey is a Muslim culture? Well, that's often mentioned in the media. I don't really take it that seriously. I mean, Islamic culture has been in southern Spain for centuries, so... I mean, they have a right to be part of Europe, and okay, so I don't see Irish it perspective. Etoka from Hungary. Uh, I think uh, the perspective of joining Turkey is the Muslim country. So you it's think a that's kind the of negative. fear. That's yeah, the it's a fear negative. Yeah, is that you have seventy million Muslims yeah. with free trade and the Erasmus program, and and all of a sudden this vacuum would be filled by all of these people moving west for opportunities and bringing with them the complexity that comes with having a Muslim minority mm-hmm. in your Christian, comfortable, more yeah. white and, uh, oh, and I think the problem is people do not really know a lot about the, the Muslim religion. If they had known more, it wouldn't be a great worry. Well, that's an interesting perspective. Federico from Spain. I totally support uh, the inclusion of Turkey in, in the European Union. I think that the, Turkey is the, the, the key country to talk to with all the Muslims, all the neighbors that we have in the other side of the Mediterranean. And sooner or later, they will join the EU. We have to remind that there are other 23 countries in Europe, physically in Europe, you know, that they say that they were, they are, and they will be Europeans, you know. We just have to think for a while that the geographical center of continental Europe is Lithuania. It's just a small place nearby Vilnius, you know. That's interesting, yeah, because you think of the Ural Mountains as the geographic uh, eastern border of Europe, halfway through Russia. But just some points on on the Turks. Let's say there's there's countries like maybe the Germans or the Italians or the French saying, you know, we're Christian countries and we don't want a Muslim country joining. I mean, you have church attendance in France, maybe at 5%. So right. they don't really have a, a, I don't a right mean, to say. I, yeah, I don't mean you know, church-going Christian. Yeah, no, no, I, I know. A yeah. Christian culture. Yeah. yeah. But also, there's also the issue of Turkey's abysmal human rights record. Turkey right, has to okay. clean its act up before it comes in. It has to stop hanging. So there's certain and thresholds you must meet economically and with civil liberties and human rights and so on. Absolutely. Uh, and there's just the reality that, as I mentioned earlier, Europe is becoming a geriatric continent, and Turkey is a young nation. Is that an economic reality that you need this youthful influx of labors? In Ireland, I, I think we have needed labor for the last ten years. I, I can't speak for the because other this, countries, there's a new reality. I think the uh, violence or the demonstrations you're going to see on the streets of Europe in the next decade is going to be courageous politicians trying to explain to an angry electorate that there's a new arithmetic and you cannot have the plush welfare system and the comfy retirements that your fathers had because there's just not enough young people working to sustain so many old people trying to live comfortable retirements. Yeah. So many interesting challenges that Europe is facing, and a lot of them are the same challenges that the United States is facing. And it's, uh, it's exciting to think that we're on the same school of hard knocks, and it's, it's okay to compare notes. Could we finish just by each of you sharing with me some hope that you have for the European Union in, uh, in, in the rest of your lifetime? Federico, where, what, what's the good news that you can hope for from the European Union? Equality. Equality. In every field. Basically, the two main goals of the European Union for uh, all of us are the, the, the liberalization of borders and the, and the common currency, the euro. And that means a lot of flexibility to local inhabitants and also to foreigner travelers that they visit us. You know, it's wonderful okay. for tourism business. Italka. Living standard will be the same in Europe. <laughs> for all of the different nations. Yes, for all of the li- economic nations. Equality. Economic equality. And Verlinka. Give us a thought on on your hope for the European Union. Yeah, well, maybe I I am a very good example of coming from one of the first countries in the European Union. I'm Dutch. Uh, It gives us the chance to live and travel wherever we want. I live in France now. I'm I'm a true example of a European. A Dutch person with a wider horizon because you're part of the European Union as well. Stephen McMillamy. 
I'm just happy to be able to say I'm a European. I'll never be European first and Irish second. Always Irish first, European second. But whenever I listen to the European anthem, which is Ode to Joy from Beethoven, you know, I do get a little sense of uh, excitement. And I do feel European. In talking to all of you, I just get this sense that we can still celebrate the differences between our countries and we can still work and live and prosper together peacefully. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Join us next time for more Travel with Rick Steves. (laughs) 